Hey, Cracked fans. So excited to share with you all today another edition of our brand new podcast at Cracked Rackets. Of course, it's called The Sideline, and it's hosted by the newest member of our team, former Top 100 WTA player Vicky Duvall. Now, in case you did not listen to last week's episode, Vicky's going to be serving up a weekly dose of interviews with the coolest guest personal stories from her travels across the globe, coverage of the major headlines in the tennis world, and of course, so much more. And if you know anything about Vicky, who of course we've been so fortunate to have on on our podcast a bunch over these past 18 months. Is there a more loving, more energetic personality in all of tennis? I certainly don't think so. Uh, so, of course, to listen to Vicky not only share stories from her experiences, but to talk to her fellow professional tennis players, I know this is going to be content all of you listeners enjoy. Are going to enjoy now. Just quickly before we get to today's phenomenal episode with WTA Top 20 player Ali Risk, just want to mention uh, this will probably be one of the final times we play this podcast on our mini break podcast feed. If this is the sort of content you are interested in, just go subscribe to the sideline. You can find it on its own podcast feed on Apple, Spotify, wherever you listen to your podcasts. Of course, you can find it on our website, crackrackets.com, week in, week out. You can find a video on our YouTube channel as well. So be sure to go like, rate, subscribe, review to the sideline wherever you listen to your podcast. But without further ado, let's get to our latest edition of the sideline where Vicky Duval speaks with the one and only Allie Risk. Hi, it's Vicky from the future. If you're listening to just the audio version, I do want to make a note that some parts of the audio have delays And if you're watching on YouTube, Allison's video is kind of laggy towards the end, so I'm really sorry about that. But it's a fantastic episode, and I want to thank Allison again for sharing her experiences, and I really hope you enjoy it. Sideliners, I'm your host Vicky Duvall. Today we have a really special episode because our guest has played eight tournaments this year, including the Grand Slams minus Wimbledon because of course that got cancelled. But you may know her as Allie Risk or Allison Risk Armitage or as I like to call her, the absolute queen of grass court tennis. She has two singles titles to her name, a finalist and seven major events and currently sits as the 26th best player in the world. Allie, thank you so much for joining me. How are you? Oh, Vic, thank you so much for having me. What an intro. <laughs> I mean, my God, I'm feeling bad about myself. I'm just going to call you up, which is usually what I do anyway. I usually send you, a t- <laughs> you already so, know I'm the biggest hype woman you. ever. You're the, you're the best, and I'm so excited to be here today, and um, Stephen will love that you also call me by his, his last name, because I haven't changed it yet, so that was special. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Anything to make him happy. <laughs> so, as you know, I have a little segment where I do the song of the week. Now, what song do you have for us this week? Yeah, I can't believe I'm going to say it, but um, I'm kind of a believer now, and I love Bieber's new song, Holy. I think it's so good. <laughs> Anytime on the radio, I get super pumped up. His voice is just so good. Oh God, run into the altar like a track star. Can't wait another second. Cause the way you hold me, hold me, hold me, hold me, hold me, feel so holy. I don't do well with the drama. And a beeper and always told me like, God, his voice is just so good. Love his music. And I'm like, Justin Bieber, really? <laughs> and... No, I'm a believer. (laughs) 
I haven't listened to that song, so I'm gonna have to check it out. I kind of find it interesting how he's like transitioned in his career. He started out like he's like super into like you know his religion now and all that, and it. I don't know. It's just kind of been interesting to see that. I think it's cool. I like so interesting, and he's done it pretty seemingly, you know. So I think it's really cool. And anything that he touches these days, I feel like just turns to gold. So, um, yeah, I fully support him. (laughs) (laughs) Love that. We're going to have to check that one out. So pivoting now into tennis. So I found this really interesting when I was doing some of my research. You've mentioned that Monica Seles was one of your idols growing up. And I was like, oh, my gosh, she was totally my idol. Like, my brother and I, yes. My brother and I were completely obsessed with her, completely obsessed with her game. So my question is, what inspired you most about her game? That's really cool, Vic. That's just one of the other reasons why I think you're the best. But <laughs> um, Monica, I thought, obviously from a tennis perspective, I loved the way that she played. She hit a super flat ball. She was super aggressive. And... Um, But on top of that, I feel like her tenacity and her mental strength at that time of the game was super special and rare. Obviously, Graf always had it, but I thought um, Monica was just uh, unbelievable. And honestly, her grunt was a huge thing for me, too, because I just I grunted from the first ball that I ever hit. So I was like, I I can get behind this woman. She, She has it all. So. Um, yeah, I, I just thought in my mind, she was kind of the full package and someone that would be really, uh, easy to try to emulate, not easy, but, um, she was easy to like, and it was something that I wanted to try to emulate. It's just so sad to see how her career went. Cause I mean, she's just one of those that I feel like if, you know, her tragic incident didn't happen to her, she would have honestly shattered all the record books. Like I stand wholeheartedly behind that. I feel like she was like completely untouchable like nobody could anymore yeah it was yeah tragedy and um I also think it's very interesting though I read her um autobiography and she never she never dwelled on that though like even though something so horrible happened to her she pretty she moved on and she didn't let it stop her and she leads you know what I think is a normal life now, which is amazing because she could have so easily just been bitter towards the world and called it, you know, but she has, um, she's really proven to be, I think, a special personality. I think so too. Have you actually met her or no? You know, I met her very, very briefly, actually in Newport. She was being inducted or she was the neck. I, I, Okay, I'm not like tooting my own horn here, but I won this sportsmanship award that we got the award in Newport at the the tournament and they had the inductees for the International Tennis Hall of Fame and she was there, but I believe she was getting inducted the following year. So she was there just to kind of see how things took place and um, I just kind of brushed shoulders with her and I'm glad I didn't meet her because I probably wouldn't have been able to speak. She's such a legend. Oh my gosh. So I have a pretty funny story. Like this is, this episode is not about me, but I have a pretty funny Monica story. So I do want to say it. I met her when I was like, I think I was like 12 or 13. Nick Boletari set up for me to go practice at her house in Florida at the time. So I went yeah. and she had like, oh my God, this, like it's totally about you. Tell me more. <laughs> like you're the host now. <laughs> 
amazing. Yeah, so she had like a really big clay court. Um, like not a big oh, tennis court, but you lost me a clay. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> me too. Like we don't know, we don't know her. <laughs> we don't like clay. Never liked her. <laughs> so, um, so we were practicing, and I'm like, you know, like trying my best. Obviously, like it's Monica freaking Sellis. So I'm like, you know, pissing my pants over here, trying to like keep the ball in the court. And we practiced for maybe like an hour and a half. And I kid you not, I think she missed one ball in an hour and a half. All she did was stand in a corner. She moved me side to side to side. And like could hit a nickel on the court, right? And I'm like, I was like, Monica, sis, like, I are dying. Like, I'm like, I'm gonna need you to miss a ball now <laughs> so I can catch my breath. <laughs> break. I was like, I can't do this. And you know what's so funny? She, so we were sitting on the changeover, and I, she had, like, a warm glass of water, or, like, a warm bottle of water or whatever. And I don't know why this was a conversation, but I was, like, I found it really interesting that she had warm water, because it's Florida. It's always hot. Right. And she's, like, I never liked cold water. Like, even no matter how hot it is, I never liked drinking cold water and I always drink warm water. So ever since then, I'm like, oh my gosh. Drink warm water. <laughs> like, I have sensitive teeth to begin with. <laughs> That's actually funny because Djokovic drinks te- uh, room temperature water because he claims that it, I don't know if it doesn't go through you as quick- quickly or it's just better for you or something, but he does that. So maybe there is something to it. There it has to be warm water. I'll remember to serve you when you come to our house. Warm water. <laughs> yeah, because I always ask for no ice anyway. Like I have sensitive teeth, so it worked out. But I'm like, oh my gosh, Monica did it, so I'm gonna do it too. <laughs> I'm like, I'm Monica now because I only drink warm water. <laughs> I need to get you some Sensodyne for those teeth. Jeez. Oh my god, I know Sensodyne sponsor me. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, <laughs> um. We could probably all agree that 2020 was an absolute dumpster fire. And I feel like it's pretty impressive that the tour managed to even host a couple tournaments with, like, relatively good success. So what were the tournaments like out there this year, and how was the setup with the protocols? Yeah, look, um, honestly, I think the tournaments that I took part in, um, which were only a handful once the restart happened, obviously beginning with Cincinnati and U.S. Open, um, did truly a remarkable job. And I had a lot of reservations, um, even on, like, player calls and um, speaking with um, Stacey Allister from USTA ahead of time about how this was possibly going to unfold and how they were going to do it in a safe manner. And um, they totally proved me wrong. (laughs) And... They put on, U.S. Open in Cincinnati in particular, put on events that uh, even in a, a, a COVID-free world would have been truly impressive. So um, from that standpoint, it was fantastic the way that um, the tour came together and actually put events on. I think from a, just a competitive standpoint and a player perspective, it was really difficult. And I, I think my results speak for, them, for themselves in how I performed and what my results were. And um, I really, truly never thought um, that the tour was even going to happen this year. So in my mind, I kind of succumbed to it being a wash and I was just going to practice at my leisure and 
um, you know, stay fit, but I wasn't in a competitive mind frame. And I really, um, it really cost me the restart. So um, personally, I wish I could take it back and handle everything a little bit differently, but it was, it was different playing without a crowd. And I'm one that, you know, doesn't always love being around a huge group of, of people as a lot of people know about me. Um, and so I thought, hey, I'm going to like flourish in this environment. But it truly was, um, it was really different. And I think it really highlights what the fans mean to me personally and what the those big atmospheres mean. And I think the nerves that come along with those moments that maybe before we were scared of or, um, you know, worried about actually caused us to perform better. And so I think, um, you know, I, I personally wish I had handled it a little bit differently, but the tournaments themselves did um, truly an excellent job. Yeah, I mean, I didn't really hear of any mishaps. I think it was just super impressive. And I heard a bit of inside information about some of the things that they were doing. So obviously, you know, the nose swaps or whatever, which I think is the worst thing in the world. Like those are so obnoxiously annoying. <laughs> They're just so painful. <laughs> yeah, it's not worse than others. So it's like, you never knew what you were going to get. Were you going to get a bad one? Were you going to get a good one? Was it going to be easy? <laughs> so it was, you know, you were always kind of on your feet about this darn test. Yeah, and I heard also that at the U.S. Open, um, players weren't allowed to touch their like if you you weren't allowed to leave the hotel, but if you if you got like food delivery, you weren't allowed to touch it. So, what were some of the like really interesting things that they had in place to keep you guys safe? Well, um, so just going along that when food was delivered, they actually had like a delivery table in the lobby of the hotel. So they would have our, a bag from, I don't know, let's just say, uh, first thing that comes to mind, like Applebee's or something, <laughs> Chipotle, and it would be like Allison written on the bag. So then you would go down to the lobby, pick up your bag. Um, U.S. Open in particular had a really cool courtyard um, outside for us, and they had like a big screen TV with um, lawn chairs, so we could actually watch matches that were happening back on the grounds, um, or just go out there and eat in the fresh air, which was honestly um, really nice for us because we were locked in our in, in the hotel room, um, which was not the best part, but. Um, the app that they used at the U.S. Open for delivery was unlike anything I've ever seen. I guess they got the idea from a Major League Baseball field that had it. Um, but you would scan a barcode on your phone. You would be at one of these little locations that I guess this barcode indicated where you were. You would stay there. You would look through the menu, press what you wanted, and the food would come to you in like 10 minutes in that area. You could be anywhere within Billie Jean King National Tennis Center and the food would come to you at that location. And I was like, what have we been doing all these years? Like, please keep this. Like, it was insane and really, really cool. So, um, and I think it, it actually, everything came within 10 minutes. So you always, you were never waiting. You weren't wondering where your food was. Like, it was very efficient. Um, so those were two, those were two things, and of course they have to do with food for me that were the most exciting. But <laughs> <laughs> they did a really they did a really good job with that. I thought. Yeah, you're like, can we keep that feature, please? <laughs> right. Every turn, 
Like, just bring the food to me as I sit at the table. <laughs> that would literally be fantastic. Also, I'm not mad at, like, the racket touching at the end of the match. Like, that's a feature we can keep, too. <laughs> that's hilarious. But, like, I never understood this spring. This is a whole other thing. But when you go and shake someone's hand, you're like, good job. And all they say is thank you like or nice playing and they're like thanks like or even before you even say anything they just say thank you i'm like thank you like thank you for what like because <laughs> i beat you or because you beat me like what are you thanking me for for my time <laughs> <laughs> so weird so maybe a racket tap keeps us far enough from each other that we don't have to say any crazy weird things <laughs> would love that would absolutely get behind that that's so funny because after i played kleisters and i went to the net like all i could say was thanks she literally i was so starstruck and confused that i even was on the court with her at arthur ash stadium <laughs> i was like i don't know what to do with myself i got rocked oh, right that's not bad that was a good reaction from your from your perspective right she was being like super nice and she's like oh my gosh like keep it up you're you know you're gonna do great things uh, and i was just like thank you thank you thank you <laughs> i was like i don't know what that's really bad. so with everything going on in the tournaments i'm sure it was like really stressful for the organizers to to kind of put everything into place and I just wonder if at any certain point at the tournament, did you feel like information was being withheld from the players or were the organizers pretty transparent? Because I feel like it would have been in their best interest, obviously, to not, you know, have these huge mishaps of cases or whatever else. So did you feel like they were, you know, being honest with you guys about everything going on? I personally didn't. Um experienced any times when the, when the actual tournaments um, came to fruition that there was anything being withheld. I think if anything, um, it was a little confusing for players because each um, kind of tournament or um, organization kind of had different protocols and different um, things that we needed to follow. They weren't universal. And I think if anything, that caused a little bit of confusion because um, you know, testing in U.S. Open, I think, was maybe every four days. When you went to Rome, it was every five days. Um, and while in U.S. Open, they were very organized in sending out text, um, you know, for you to get in there and get tested um, in the other places. And it's just, it's no fault against them. It just, um, they put it on the players to kind of remember. We weren't necessarily always getting text reminders and email reminders so it was on us which we you know we are already uh we were already experiencing something that was very abnormal for us and in this circumstances it was um it was stressful because we were trying to do everything right and do the right thing but on top of that we had to remember when we were going to go get tested and which day it was and um it just on top of you know worrying about our matches which usually you know is a is a biggest concern so i think we ran different protocols which was confusing and you just kind of had to take the time to learn them see what they were and um uh obey them so i think if anything that would be the only thing wow i literally couldn't imagine like already dealing with the nerves of just 
competing and being out there and then having to worry about freaking a no a swab up your nose too every couple hours or a couple days or oh my gosh well i actually oh my my day i missed the day and i had to go the fall the following day and i think i i was actually playing that next day but i just didn't i didn't even i thought i had one more day to go and get tested and then i found that i didn't and i'm thinking oh my god are they gonna are they gonna you know forfeit me tomorrow am i gonna be able to play my match like i didn't know what the repercussion was and so it was just a lot of you know back and forth and honestly i spoke to other players and i think i was the only one with that issue so that's my fault Everyone else was much more organized, but um, yeah, it was definitely a thing. And I actually think moving forward, it's uh, looking like the foreseeable future is going to be um, going to be the same. So um, I think we'll we'll become much more accustomed to the protocols. <laughs> yeah, and obviously, you know, with every tournament that passes, too, you guys knew a little bit more what to expect. But you played the Qatar. You played the Qatar Total Open at the end of February, and your next tournament after that was the West West. Excuse me, Western and Southern Open. That's a mouthful. On August twenty first. Sometimes I feel like training without a clear schedule or I guess a specific goal can be kind of hard. How did you manage to stay motivated in such a time of uncertainty throughout those couple months? That's a great question. I think I touched on it a little earlier. I personally don't think I did a great job. And um, I wish I, um, you know, would have had the foresight to, to do something different. But at the same time, I truly enjoyed those months um, at home and being with my husband and having that time. I've never had that um, even, you know, probably since I was 12 years old, um, a period of time where I was home um, and able to enjoy it. And that's truly what I did. And so I really didn't lose anything um, in that time, except um, I, I didn't handle, like you say, the motivation aspect. Um, even the training, I just, it, I, there, like I said, I thought the year was going to be canceled. And um, I really believed that. And luckily it wasn't. I mean, we had the opportunity to earn money and, and, and get out there and play. But I really, I really struggled with that. And I think I almost emotionally shut off um, in that time. And so I know there's a quote I like. It's like, um, stay ready so you don't have to get ready. And I truly did not follow that guideline <laughs> because I was kind of a show when I came back. And um, just emotionally because I had totally turned it off um, for such a long period of time. So it was a learning lesson um, and it was challenging coming back. And so um, I think, um, you know, for this time, even now for off season, I still, it will be a few months since I competed last going into next year as well. But I think I've been able to handle it differently and get my uh, emotions ready and, you know, looking to compete. Whereas uh, when we were told we had months off, I, I, I mentally shut off. Yeah, that's really hard. It's kind of like, you know, I can think of an example on a much smaller and less significant scale, but it's like when you're at a tournament and, you know, there's like a rain delay or something and you think like matches are done for the day and then all of a sudden they're like, oh, just kidding, you know, like you're going to go compete now and you're like, I wasn't in match mode anymore, like you told That's me. Right. So it's, 
That's right. And I'm not someone who's naturally like always like in match mode. I think maybe when I was younger, I was, but as I've gotten older and I've, I've tried to manage my emotions a little bit better, like I've learned how to turn on and turn off. And I really just truly turned off. So <laughs> it wasn't, um, it wasn't in my best interest on the tennis court, but like I said, I truly enjoyed my time off and being at home. Love that. I want to get into 2019 because so snap that whole year. So you probably had the best year of your career. <laughs> come back. <laughs> Can we go back in time for multiple reasons? <laughs> um, so like I said, you probably had the best career, the best year of your career in 2019. You finished with a career high ranking of number 18 in the world. And during that year, you won your second WTA title at the Libama Open on grass. And you beat world number one at the time, Ashley Barty, in the fourth round at Wimbledon before falling to Serena Williams in a thriller match in the quarters. My first question is, I want to get to Serena in a second, but when you have such a huge win over a world number one like Ashley Barty, I'm sure that's such a huge moment for you. Does that win go beyond the moment? Like, do you say to yourself at that point, I can be number one in the world too? Well, I definitely think to an extent it gives you um, a sense of confidence thinking that, you know, obviously you beat the best in the world. Like you can be there too. Um, but obviously you have to go out and prove it. And so, you know, there's a lot of work to be done. Um, I still believe that, you know, the best is ahead of me, but um it was, it was, a, I was in such a zone at that tournament that honestly, it didn't even occur to me what she, you know, was ranked or what anybody was ranked or how they were playing because I felt that I had everything I needed to kind of back myself and go out there and compete and, and probably, probably win if I, if I did everything I needed to do. So, um, again, that doesn't have, that feeling doesn't happen every week. I wish it did, but, um, in the moment, it was um, it was the best I've ever felt on a tennis court, for sure. And then, in the next round, you played Serena Williams, which I still so vividly remember watching that match. Like, I was dying. It was such good tennis. <laughs> so, you had a oh. huge, huge match, huge moment against Serena on center court. Give us the rundown of what that was like. Honestly, like, I've heard so many times that players, I guess to a certain extent, you feel like you, like, lose to Serena in your head before you even get on the court, but you shut up and you were like, listen, we're going to battle today. <laughs> so what was that like playing Serena on center court? <laughs> it was, um, it was truly my uh, favorite tennis memory, even though I did lose the match. Um, but going into it, as you say, a lot of people do go up against Serena and lose before they even get out on the court. And, it was crazy, but I really thought I was going to win. I, I thought I was going to beat Serena. Um, I was um, feeling really good about everything. And I was surprised I lost, to be honest. And I think I had opportunities to maybe, um, you know, do it in the third, not necessarily do it, but put myself in a good chance, a good uh, opportunity to do it in the third. And I just didn't quite run with it. But um, she came up really big and important points there at the end. And um, I was super proud of how I handled myself of the situation. If you had taken an alley risk, you know, 20 year old and put her in the same situation, I probably would have. <laughs> 
I probably, you know, would have had, you know, a lot of anxiety out there, but not for one second did um, I feel worried, concerned, anxious. I just w had so much trust in what I was doing, you know, on the grass and how I was playing that um, she was going to really have to play well to beat me. And she really did. And so it was one of those matches where I couldn't be upset because I, I did everything that I thought I could do. And, and she played well. And I, I wish I had that feeling after every match. <laughs> Yeah, that was a heck of a match. Like, I seriously, I can see some of the points still in my head. Like, those were some amazing points. Even up until the third, you're like, whoa. You know, it was kind of up in the air the whole match, I feel like, until she kind of ran with it. But yeah. you, you're kind of friendly with Serena, I would say. But I'm so curious because I feel like some players, like, prepare for matches differently. Like, I could probably be more focused going out into a match, but... I'm sure Serena's, like, very in her zone. So did you guys – I I always get so curious about this. Like, the day of the match, did you guys, like, not talk whatsoever? Like, give me the rundown. <laughs> I'm curious. It's a question. I actually – no, we definitely – when I see Serena, obviously we're very, we've played on many or a few Fed Cup teams together. I actually played doubles with her at Fed Cup. And um, obviously, I believe Serena is the best player that's ever played tennis. And I'm a huge fan of Serena. So um, I still get a little tight around Serena. When I was told I had to play doubles with her at Fed Cup, I was like, mate, <laughs> oh my God, I can't do this to America. <laughs> Um, there's always been that awe factor and but she has been nothing but uh, welcoming and friendly and kind um, every time that I've dealt or been around her dealt with her so um, but we wouldn't necessarily have a long conversation so being that it was match day we wouldn't have a long conversation either so nothing really changed there um, but obviously just a ton of respect from my end to her and um, she was very at the end I told her I said Serena um, go take Wimbledon for us and uh, she was really nice and I wish I thought she was going to win it after that match I thought for sure uh, Serena was going to win Wimbledon and it was just a kind of a crazy turn of events yeah I agree I feel like I don't know she's like such a presence too and it's just I, I mean I've always been a fan of both Williams sisters I think Venus is such a good role model too I like mm -hmm. had my locker next to Venus at US Open whatever year I played it I feel like I haven't played tennis you did in 10 years. <laughs> you searched wherever her locker was and put yours right next to it <laughs> stop exposing me <laughs> they have they're so special. They have like their own lockers with like the what you call it, like the plate, the plaque, plaque. Yeah. Yes, plate. <laughs> Are we going no, to eat? Old plate. That's what it is. <laughs> <laughs> and whenever she would get back there, I'd be like, "Oh my god, I'm so sorry." Like I'm in your corner. <laughs> I like got my me over here. <laughs> oh. oh my gosh. <laughs> I'm sure she was honored to have you as a neighbor too, though. Who you couldn't ask for a better neighbor than Vicky Duval. So let's be honest here. Vicky Duval, who should probably not be starstruck by her competitors. Like what? What is that? They have such a presence, and they've done so much for our sport that it's hard not to. It's hard not to, but they are. They're they're humans just like us, but they have just done so much that it's hard not to be in awe. It's literally unbelievable. I love them so much. Yeah! That's crazy. <laughs> I need to stop. 
Um, so going back again to our dumpster fire of a year, for the first time ever, I think, Roland Garros was played after the U.S. Open, which is so crazy because I think that was like Italy, the one of the tournaments in Italy right before the Open, so there wasn't, or right before French, so there wasn't like much preparation. Was that super weird for you as a player to kind of play those slams in reverse order? was definitely different but you know what like you say like what a year it was like we, we couldn't we didn't know what the heck was happening or what was going to come so we were kind of just like oh there's a tournament let's go play it there's a tournament let's go play like trying to grab anything that we could so the fact that they actually held the events I think people were just like yes like let's take it and run with it but yes if you actually analyze and think about the situation and what's actually unfolding it's kind of crazy like you go from hardcore. I mean usually you know, we prep on clay for, you know, at least three weeks, uh, you know, before you go to any clay court event. I mean, we had, I think we had a week um, if you didn't do well in the week, the prior tournament. So it was a very back to back and especially someone like, like myself, who's like, you know, red clay, what? Like, you know, like, can we see that this is like, yeah, no. So, I mean, I need as much time as possible. So I was just, I really tried after Cincinnati and US Open and the way that I felt and how my tennis was. I just really tried to embrace it, try to do the best that I could and take it for what it was. And, you know, it was an opportunity um, to go out, compete, um, keep my feet wet. And I really wasn't asking the world of myself because I just knew internally what was, what was going on and what, um, uh, what I was trying to deal with, um, as I'm sure many other players were as well. Um, so it was different, but I just tried not to analyze it and think about it too much and just try to take it for, for what it was. That's all y'all really could do at the end of the day, I guess. And I imagine 2020, yeah. was, 2020 was probably even harder for you because you were actually supposed to play in the Olympic Games, and obviously that was canceled. Mm -hmm and move back to, or move forward to 2021. So I, I imagine that was really hard because obviously the Olympics are a huge deal and it would have been, you know, such a great honor for you, but you haven't qualified yet for the 2021 Olympic games. What would it mean to you to qualify and represent your country? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I'm glad you touched on it because it is, it, it would, it would mean the absolute world to qualify for the Olympics and to play and compete and represent America. Um, I don't think that there would be anything greater than, uh, you know, getting to represent your country. Um, even if it's a fed cup, I take those, um, with extreme pride. So to take it, um, and one more level and go to the Olympics would be incredible. And, um, I think just, you know, as we've said, 2020 was such an interesting year. Um, and I was super excited to have that opportunity um, because I pretty much did qualify if it had been in 2020. But um, obviously things change. And right now I, it's out of my hands and I can only do the best that I can. Um, but if it were to happen, obviously it would be uh, an incredible honor. So we'll see how the rest of the um, tournaments go. And I still think I'm in a good position as are a lot of other girls. So. We'll see who, who gets the opportunity, but it would be amazing. Fingers crossed. Oh my gosh, we need Ali Risk repping US of A at the Olympics. Whoever's listening, we need to make it happen. I don't care. <laughs> like, we need this. I would definitely 
I'd probably be crying the entire time that I was there because <laughs> I would just be overwhelmed with joy, but yeah. <laughs> you know what's so crazy? We need you to go to the Olympics, and then you're coming back on my podcast, and we're going to do, like, a complete – you're going to just give us the whole spiel from, like, landing mm-hmm. at – stepping foot at the Olympics and going to the court. Like, what food did you guys eat, you know? <laughs> I am all for it. With that being said, hopefully they even have it in 2021. I mean, I don't know what's here. Um, I'm sure there's going to be, you know, plenty of restrictions and stipulations at the games just because it's going to be so many people. And even if we have a, um, a vaccine, I still think that it would be a challenging time. So we'll see what the heck happens. We shall see. I feel like I would consider you a pretty positive player when you're out there competing. Like, whenever I watch you play, you're doing your little butt kicks. And you're, I, love, I love when you, like, hit your thigh. Like, I mean, so many girls do it, but you're always, like, you know, the thigh. Like, come on, Allie, let's go. <laughs> so, with all that being said, what do you do outside the court to work on your mental strength? Okay, so this is like my favorite question to be asked because I think it's everything. And um, it's actually funny. I feel like the only thing that can get me down in life is my tennis. And um, I think it's just because it's what I do every day. I take so much pride in it and I put so much effort into it that, you know, I want it to be as, as good as it can be. And when it's not, it's really frustrating. And so... I have actually in the last, um, more like a life coach. And then I had had a sports psychologist for about the last um, eight months, which that's what we're all kind of after here. Tennis is so short-lived. Obviously, we want to be the best at it that we can. But so much of how we um, react in tennis is how we react off the court to situations as well. And I think that's something try to handle a little bit differently because so often I would be, I would have anxiety and I would be worried. And this is me in school too. When I, you know, years ago, I, cause I wanted to do well and I wanted to have success and I wanted to get a good grade or so anything that kind of had a competition involved um, would get me very anxious. And which is funny because that's what I do every day in tennis. But um, the older that I've gotten, the better that I've been able to kind of handle those situations and just react a little bit calmer and um, just a little bit more coherent in those times, which I think has translated um, to my tennis. And obviously it's, it's a work in progress, especially because I feel like I'm a little bit more um, predest- or pre-exposed to these, you know, feelings. So um it's definitely a work in progress and um i'm really lucky that my husband you know helps me day to day because i i can be a anxiety ridden mess sometimes so he helps me a lot day to day which i'm very good for <laughs> i'm like over here with my notepad like okay life coach <laughs> you're good at anything that you do but you would be an unbelievable life coach i would hire you <laughs> i'd be like things that you've been through and the things if you can get someone that supports you and and stay as positive with you, it really goes a long way. So you have a future in that too. It's huge. Oh my gosh. Speaking of your husband, I'm like thinking back of the most iconic court call ever when he came over. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> and you were just freaking out in your yeah, match. I will 
Yes, exactly. There, this, this is a prime example because I couldn't let go of what had happened and I was so caught up in the past and he couldn't take it anymore. So he was just like, shut that. And you know what? I ended up winning. I ended up winning Carlos Suarez Navarro, who was top 10 at the time. And afterwards, my parents were like, Stephen, can you please tell Allison that more often? <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes you just need somebody to tell you like it is, you know? So Seriously. I respected that. That was fantastic. It was worth the fine. <laughs> it was worth the fine. <laughs> and then people were getting all like up in their whatever's about it on the internet. Like, Y'all don't even just stop, okay? People were like, oh my gosh, like, Allison's coach. I'm like, first of all, no, it's not her coach. <laughs> That's right. That's right. It wasn't my coach. And even, like, literally, he knew exactly what needed to be said at that time. And that was the one thing that I was going to respond to. And he knew it. <laughs> Love that. <laughs> so you've worked with your coach, Billy Heiser, for three years now I don't know if I'm saying his last name right I hope I am but yeah okay awesome so you've experienced a lot of success in your partnership with Billy what would you say are some key factors for a strong coach player relationship yeah I've been super grateful to work with Billy um we're going on our fourth year which um I think is really special because a lot of partnerships you know in the tennis world as you know and a lot of people probably listening that they're um, very short-lived and people get tossed around really quickly and easily and they're on to the next person and you know I really think um, that having a solid player coach relationship and someone that um, you believe has your back no matter what is just um, it's the number one Billy and to have the success that I've had is really special for me um, obviously but I think for him too and it's really cool to be able to share that together and to know that we've put in so much work and time and effort and to get um, some fruits of our labor, which is really positive. Um, but I think the number one thing, beside knowing that you guys are for, there for each other unconditionally, you know, in good times and bad, um, I would, I mean, there, there's so many things that I think are important. But um, you you can't you can't beat that. So I'm very grateful for his his time, his effort, and um, yeah, that's that's really that's really it. Yeah, and it's you know I feel like that's so important. I know especially with some of the players at the top, you kind of see a lot of like shuffling going on, going on with coaches, which I think is really hard because you need someone that's gonna be there for you like you said day in day out and like know your game and there's so much of like the personality that goes with it too because it's hard to find someone that you just like mesh with and um that so you know it's so true, that you know it's so true. and I, yes that you know has your back and i've been i've been through my handful of coaches i i actually am probably one of the few players though i previously worked with eve boulet who was extremely instrumental in my career um and he was in Toronto. And so it just became too much to go back and forth. And so there was a influx period there that I was trying to find a coach and I went through, um, or I tried at least three different coaches um, that I can think of. And it was all in a very short time span, probably no more than a year and a half. Um, and I just knew immediately, um, you know, I, 
And it was very hard. I knew immediately, like, if I went to talk about my emotions and the coach didn't respond in a positive way, and they only wanted to be about tennis, and they only wanted to make it about uh, competition, um, that, that, that was not going to work for me. That partnership was not going to work because a huge part of tennis for me is uh, my emotions and how I'm going to handle it. And so I had to find someone that was going to be patient and um, willing to invest time on that side with me, not just on the tennis side. And we actually joke because Billy is, um, his wife, Jackie is um, actually, she's like a world-renowned photographer, wedding photographer, which is beside, beside the point. But she, he says that he's able to do this because his wife, Jackie is so similar to how I am emotionally. <laughs> so it, that kind of has had that experience whether it's with another player or with you know their spouse to be able to to help someone to get past that so i think for me to have someone that is able to talk about emotions and how i feel not just how i'm playing um is huge and it's extremely rare because i've been around enough coaches at this point now in my career and um i really only know two coaches that are active on the tour that would be even willing to talk about it yeah, and I mean, I think, you know, the success of your partnership has shown throughout the years. You've had more than 20 wins over current and former top 10 players, which is huge. Like, I don't think I've had... Bringing that out. Girl, I was like, listen, WTA, give me some stats. Give me some information. I need to be prepared. <laughs> You are prepared. I'm so impressed. I don't even know these stats about me, so it's great. Ooh, I even know how many aces you hit last year. Creepy. <laughs> bro? <laughs> I'll give you a hint. Yeah, it was bro. more than 60. <laughs> really? Yeah, they were, that's, that's hard to believe. I don't remember one of them. <laughs> <laughs> oh, gosh. Um, what was I going to say? <laughs> so, yeah, you've had a lot of wins over top 10 players. Which victory would you consider your greatest victory in your career? A couple come to mind. I, last year in 2019, I, I've said this a few times, but I played the final of Surbiton. As you know, that tournament, we were there together. Yes. And um, I was playing Magdalena Rybarkova, who historically was, you know, a really top grass court player always kind of did well on the grass, as did I. And I played her in the final. I was trying to defend my Serbian title. <laughs> and, um, I lost the first set and I just kind of didn't back down. And I know that sounds so simple, but historically um, it could have been heartbreaking for me to lose the first set when I thought I was going to win it. And, and I lost in a tiebreaker, I think at least. And I battled back and I won the match. And it kind of set the tone then going into Wimbledon for me that if I just focus on myself and what I'm doing, that um, things were gonna probably work out in the end. And if I lost, I was at least gonna be proud of it. And so that was a huge win. And I actually, my, the other one that comes to mind is against Kiki Burton's in Labima final because I was down and out. I, I don't think I put two balls in the court. I mean, she wasn't missing. She was playing fine. But, like, couldn't put two balls in the court. 
And I was just like, well, this is the most atrocious match. Like, I can't believe I even showed up like this. It's the, in the final. Like, I've obviously proven myself in the prior matches. Why? What's going on today? And I was able to stick in it. And I think I was down a set in 4-1. And I came back and, and won in three sets, which was crazy. And it was to win my second WTA title. So I will definitely always remember it. Oh, my God. I love that they're both on grass. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Everybody's on grass, let's be honest. <laughs> God, we live for the grass. So good. We live for grass, Vic. We really do. Like, my, like, huge breakthrough was, like, right after grass season two when I finally got to top 100. I was like, okay. Like, I was like, you know what I was doing? Every- your, your big breakthrough? Well, yeah, it came from, like, Nottingham, Birmingham, and then Wimbledon, after Wimbledon that year, well, the year I got diagnosed, but that year, that was when I first cracked top 100. That's incredible. Yeah, like... That is so incredible. I I remember it. You were just a babe. (laughs) A little babe. (laughs) Every four, I was, like, feeling really adventurous on the grass, too. Like, every 40 love game, I'd serve in volley. I was like, who is she? I mean, half the time, the volley didn't make it to the other side, but I was like, you know what? (laughs) Like, 40 love, we can throw away a point here, no problem. (laughs) Let me just practice. (laughs) I was like, the one time I made contact and, like, dinked it over, I was like, oh my god, stop. I was like, I'm quitting. (laughs) Oh gosh. All right. Pivoting now, I'm so excited because I love talking about my two favorite parents. <laughs> um, you got married last year, and I was there. Oh my god! And I met a full time before. Oh my god, it's fantastic. So, so wedding photo is you like rolling on the ground. I don't know what you and Caroline were doing, but you guys were on the you were on the ground. <laughs> oh my gosh! So we were doing. We were playing like like a fishing thing or whatever you know you know like when you're dancing and you oh my gosh why are, why are you so cool big because <laughs> <laughs> i'm pretending to be a fish out of water <laughs> oh god we're like do we have any other dancers this is embarrassing so she was like she was like <laughs> hooking the line or whatever and i was like oh god you got me <laughs> and so oh. i like pretend like <laughs> fish and I like wiggle my way <laughs> and I guess at that point I was like too in character so I was like oh god I'm on the floor and I'm flapping like a fish <laughs> I got way too into it I don't know what was going on that is epic oh my god okay it all makes sense now while you were on the ground <laughs> I know I was like very sober there was nothing wrong with me <laughs> I was like this is not normal behavior I don't know well you might be sober but wrong with you (laughs) (laughs) I mean I can't argue with that so now that you are married in what ways if any does life change for you as a married person oh geez really nothing because Stephen and I lived together for for quite a bit before we before we got married so um from that perspective not much i think if anything you know if it was just me in the house i would throw together just like a tasteless chicken starch and veggie dinner well steven's taste buds are unlike 
anything I've ever experienced. <laughs> and I got to throw this on it and throw this on it and put some this sauce on it. And like, just to make it palatable for him. So like, it really, like, that's the most tiring thing I do in my day is try to figure out how to make dinner taste good enough for Steven. <laughs> and I can't say I do a good job of it, but I tried. The effort's definitely there. So that's really all I can do. <laughs> I am sure he appreciates it. And you're like, where's the curry? I love that every time I come over, our tradition is like butter chicken. Live for that. <laughs> yeah. See, that's something like he would love that. But I, I just haven't tried it yet. I'm sure I could probably attempt it and it be somewhat palatable. But like, why? Like, I'm just not ready for that yet. Like, we're starting small to get to the butter chicken is what we're, we're working with here. <laughs> What's starting small? Give me, like, a typical, like, like what okay. was the meal you tried the hardest on? Oh, that I tried the hardest on. Well, one of my go-tos is eggplant parm. I make it once a week. I'm not sure if that's really up his alley, but it is fantastic, and I'd say it's my number one dish. I did venture and try to do a bolognese sauce from scratch, and he loved that because, of course, it took me six hours to make it, so he loved it. <laughs> like, I ain't got time for that, but, like, that one-off was a go. He loved it with some pappardelle pasta. We're big on pappardelle pasta. It's like that thick egg noodle, and it is so good. So I've done, actually, cacio pepe with pappardelle noodle, God, I sound so good, but like really like that doesn't <laughs> that doesn't take a lot of time to the cacio pepe. Um Chef's kiss. <laughs> oh my gosh, our listeners are probably like, we don't care about all this food. <laughs> so, okay. Oh, this is my last question. Okay, so pivoting back to tennis oh, for a second. Oh. So Getting ready for the 2021 season, obviously things are still a little bit up in the air. It's like you said, it's going to be about, you know, being flexible, managing kind of the uncertainty of the situation. Still, there doesn't seem to be a whole lot of clarity on how tournaments are going to run and all that. I know Australia is still trying to figure it out. So where do you plan on starting out tournament wise and what are your goals for next year? Yeah, I think, um, well, I was going to go to Australia and play what would have been Brisbane, Adelaide, and then the Australian Open. And um, we've been holding off on our flight because, first of all, I went to book one probably a month ago when we thought it was going to be Brisbane, Adelaide, US, uh, Australian Open. And then tickets, a round trip ticket in economy was $6,000. And... I must say, I've paid a pretty penny on flights in my life, but never that pretty. So I was like, we're going to hold off on this. Billy, my coach, actually was the one that saw it. And then I started investing. I'm like, oh, my gosh, he's right. I thought he was just like, you know, incapable of searching correctly. <laughs> and he was right. So we were like, we're going to hold off. I wrote Craig Tiley. Craig's like, we're going to work it out. We're going to figure out a solution for everyone. He's the best. Craig Tiley, like, kills it. And um, then just a few days ago, they said that they're not letting anyone in the country until January 1st, which obviously changes 
um, the situation for all of the tournaments and for the players, of course. So I think it looks like we might be able to spend Christmas at home now, which prior we were supposed to leave December 12th and have a two-week quarantine in Australia. So we um, will have the opportunity now to probably be home for Christmas, which is really special. And then we'll go there and probably have all the weeks straight in Melbourne. So it's going to be, you know, every tournament will then be placed at the Australian Open site, which is what I think people are, are suggesting, which I don't think would be a bad idea. So I'm going to stay there. I'm going to be in Melbourne for a few weeks and um, we'll see how it goes. I think it'll be positive though, because unlike the tournaments that were held during the restart, once we get there, we do our quarantine, we're then able to go around Melbourne um, as if we're living there. So we can go to restaurants, we can go walk outside of the hotel, we can go places. So I think that will be extremely nice and that will give us some sort of a sense of normalcy um, when we didn't think that we would ever see that again in the foreseeable future. So that part's definitely positive. Um, so yeah, I look to just play in, play in Melbourne and then I guess if Doha, Dubai happen again, um, I'll be there and then, and then we'll see what's, what's what fingers crossed. And I just pray for the tour that, you know, um, the finances are looking good for everyone and, and it gives, um, all the players an opportunity to make some money and, and, uh, earn a living. Yeah. Fingers crossed that, you know, things look a little bit brighter next year. Also, I'm like, fingers crossed I get back out there. I mean, shoot. <laughs> no kidding. Vic, we're waiting for the return. I know. I haven't played a tournament all year. <laughs> hey, well, let me tell you, you didn't miss much, number one. <laughs> number two, if you're getting healthy and you feel good, you couldn't ask for anything else. So being able to play will be, um, you know, a close, a close second to being healthy, I think. Yes, I am you looking not, forward to it. <laughs> you didn't miss anything. <laughs> <laughs> On that note, Sideliners, thank you so much for joining me for another episode. Allie, thank you so much again. This was honestly so much fun. It was so much fun. You're the best, Vic. Thanks for having me. I'm so honored to be a part of it. Of course. <laughs> You're too kind. Thank you again for listening, and I'll catch you guys on next week's episode. Bye!